Sherb Alper and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, as he is on most Mondays, is our managing editor, the infrequent blinking Dave Cameron. We begin this episode of the podcast by discussing the Sabre Analytics Conference set to begin in less than two weeks from now. At said conference, Cameron will not only be participating on a panel, uh, but also giving a research presentation on the value that teams have derived of late from pitchers coming off injury. After that, I asked Cameron about the positional power rankings that are going up on the site this week, not only how he got the idea and how he plans on executing it this week, but also if he can maybe write the bullpen post I've been assigned for Friday, at which point I should be poolside at a hotel in Arizona. Finally, towards the end of the conversation, we discuss Andrew McCutcheon's extension of six years and $51 million plus million-plus with the Pittsburgh Pirates. We look at some other young outfielders who've received comparable contracts of late, and what sort of value McCutcheon is likely to provide for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the near and slightly less near future. It's managing editor Dave Cameron, it's Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Arizona trip. So did you have a face reconstruction? Oh, well, it's funny that you say that because uh, I do happen to be one of the handsomer members of Team Fangraphs. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is being a medium-sized fish in the tiniest pond ever. The tiniest possible pond. In fact, yeah, maybe the fish is actually bigger. To call it a pond would be a, <laughs> would be unfair to ponds everywhere. Yeah, right. But the um, the um, so I go there and uh, I, I had sort of had to make the appointment on a on a, what do you call it a sort of uh, on short notice. Yeah. And so so I ended up um, getting a sort of uh, a woman who I hadn't had before, and then I uh, when I was done they told me it was forty five dollars for the haircut. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I was uh, I was a little bit. Uh, curious, but I said, well, I mean, I'll pay it. And clearly, I'm in no position to argue at this point, seeing as the um, service has been rendered. But why is that the case? And they said, well, people just have different prices. And, uh, oh, man. So I paid $45 for a gentleman's haircut. I mean, it's a nice haircut. Yeah, but, I mean, great clips is like five ninety nine. Yeah. No, it is. Well, and um, while, you know, people from my social class don't go to great clips, uh, Cameron, <laughs> the uh, forty-five dollars is. Uh, I would. I would. I would suggest that's the the upper bound uh, of which I feel comfortable paying for for a haircut. I, I think you just got the Jonathan Pebble one of haircuts. Hmm. I I understand what your meaning is, but all, I'm afraid of the alternate meanings of that. I don't know <laughs> what they could be. I mean, my my haircut's going to try and impregnate strange women. I don't want that to happen. Well, yeah, you never know. I don't know. No, you never know. That's uh, that's what life is all about. How are you doing? Uh, how are you doing, though, Cameron? Uh, you've been in just North Carolina. You didn't go up to Sloan this year, did you? No, we skipped Sloan this year. With the uh, ten-day trip to Phoenix coming up and uh, two weeks on the road prior, it was uh, I needed one weekend at home. Otherwise, I'm already going to be on the road five out of six weekends, and six out of six was just too much. Right now, actually. Um, the reason probably there was less incentive for you to go to Sloan this year is because 
uh, Sabre is hosting their own analytics conference actually in right. Phoenix. Yep, so we're only part of that. Uh, we're helping them put that on, and I'm only a panelist, and I'm doing a research presentation, so we're pretty involved with the, the Sabre conference in a couple of weeks, and I think that one's going to be more baseball-focused. Sloan is great, but it's, it's pretty heavily rooted in basketball. Um, I mean, it's put on by the general manager of the Houston Rockets, and, um, you know, and it's, it's a basketball conference with a little bit of other sports on the side, whereas the Sabre conference can be all baseball all the time. Now, um, I know that when it was first announced, uh, there was a lot of um, TBA going on uh, for the Sabre Analytics Conference. But I think that the, yeah. your most recent link to it, though, uh, su- suggests that the uh, schedule has gotten considerably more robust in the meantime. Yeah, the full agenda is out. Uh, they've announced all of the panel discussions and the research pres- presenters and what they're going to be speaking about. So I think overall... Uh, People who are on the fence or haven't registered yet can get an idea of what they're in store for. And, you know, I mean, it's uh, certainly not the cheapest conference in the world. I mean, these, these things are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they put cost money to put on. You have to rent hotel space. And, um, you know, so that it's not the, uh, you know, it's not a dollar to get in. But I think it will be worth people's time. And if they're in Arizona during the week that we're putting it on and they don't care about college basketball for the opening couple days of March Madness, uh, they should definitely come. Right, and now I saw that um, it appears that there are going to be some GMs there. Yeah, I think uh, uh, three or four uh, team presidents or GMs are going to be there. They're actually doing a GMs panel. They're doing a player panel. Uh, Brandon McCarthy is tentatively scheduled to be on that. Um, they're working on some other players as well. Um, there's going to be a lot of good folks there. I think uh, you know Sean Foreman from Baseball Reference is going to be there. John Dewan of Baseball Info Solutions. Uh, Rob Nyer is going to be there. I'll be there. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a, a well-attended, uh, interesting conference, and, you know, hopefully we can get some people to say some interesting stuff rather than just stock answers and politically correct, uh, you know, panel speak. Right, right, to say uh, to say nothing while saying a great deal. Right, yes. There's some, uh, a, lot, a lot of people are very good at that, especially at bigger conferences like Sloan, you know, where they know that they're being recorded and it's, uh, it's almost treated like a press conference to some degree. But, you know, last year when we did our uh, small f- fangraphs meetups with, a, you know, Rick Hahn and Tony Blangino, those guys were hilarious. And some of the stories that Rick Hahn told were really funny. And, um, you know, I think uh, the hope is that since there's not going to be uh, – since the conference is new and it might not be as big or as notable as something like Sloan as of yet, uh, maybe the guys will be a little more candid. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I will uh, second that. Um... Um, motion as to um, what you're saying with regard to to Blangino and Han. I mean, Han uh, seems not only very comfortable talking, but um, I don't know if his lo- if his lips were loose, uh, but they they were not. He was not afraid to drop the occasional f bomb, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> right, and, you know, and he was he was honest. Like, uh, you know, he wasn't just trying to evade answers and hide every. Uh, secret. I think we could say Chris Antonetti was much more like that when we did the event in Goodyear. Um, but, you know, I think uh, some people are, are going to be comfortable saying stuff in front of a smaller audience. And I think, you know, well, there should be a couple hundred people at the Sabre Conference, but it's not going to be something on such a large scale that they might be afraid that anything they say is instantly going to be published in the New York Times the next day. So, you know, hopefully the, the panelists will uh, be interesting and intriguing and um, you know, if not, then I'll just insult them all while I'm on panel with them. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Now, you said you're also giving a research uh, presentation. Or, uh, what is that about? Yeah, so we're actually going to expand on a column I wrote uh, a little while ago about 
the deflated price of uh, injured pitchers. So one of the things that we've noticed over the last couple of years is that the price of guys who have had recent DL stints has gone way down. So a couple of years ago, you might remember, like, Ben Sheets got $10 million, and Rich Harden got $8 million uh, as, like, rehab upside guys, and they were terrible. <laughs> like, they didn't pitch at all, uh, or they pitched very little. They didn't pitch well when they were on the mound. And so it seems like teams uh, have reacted and said, we're going to give much less money to any pitcher who uh, had any kind of elbow twinge or arm twinge. And, uh, you know, so we've seen guys like Paul Mahomes got $5 million, and, um, you know, Jeff Francis had to settle for a minor league contract. I mean, guys with some injury red flags in their track record got very little money this year. And, you know, if you look at last year, the performance of guys who um, – had some injury issues and were medical red flags were almost as good as the pitchers who were workhorses and were kind of given multi-year deals for their uh, quality track records of health. And so kind of the, the presentation will kind of look at the cost of uh, acquiring a um, damaged pitcher and whether the cost has certainly gotten, whether it's gotten too low relative to the value of a healthy pitcher. Now, yeah, and I, it comes to mind we've, we've spoken um – not at great length, but to some degree uh, about the Mark Burley contract for the Marlins, which is kind of, uh, in some senses, is a response to the sort of pitcher you're talking about. Right. I think, you know, Barry Lido uh, got a big contract because he was durable. I mean, that was certainly his big selling point as he was a 200-inning guy every year. Uh, Brunson Arroyo last winter got 200, you know, he was 200-inning guy, so he got $35 million. Mark Burley got a lot more um, than he would have, you know, if he was a little who had had some time on the disabled list. I mean, a big selling point for Burley was that he doesn't get hurt. So, you know, I think in looking at these guys and then looking at, you know, the Carl Pavanos of the world or, you know, Bartolo Colon or some of these guys who have struggled with injury issues, teams should know what the cost is of picking a pitcher out of each group and kind of what the performance expectations should be and, you know, evaluate whether paying for durability is really something they should do. How long do you expect that, that sort of arc to last, This this trend now? Of um, you know recently injured or recently ish injured pitchers uh, receiving receiving less um, relative to or receiving less money than we might expect relative to to what their future performance could very well be. Yeah, it's hard to say. And and to be honest with you, like having not completed my research for the presentation yet, I can't say for sure that this is an inefficiency. It could be the teams uh, have correctly assessed that. The cost of having to consistently replace an injured guy in the rotation. I mean, you know, we pointed out Bertolo Colon was a success story last year, but he didn't exactly finish the year strong, and the Yankees had to replace him for October. So it's, uh, you know, it's certainly possible that the teams have looked at it and said, hey, look, you know, part of what we're paying for in a contract is postseason value, and these guys who get dinged up, you know, their uh, end of season performance isn't as good as their early season performance, or maybe they're not available in October, so we're going to pay them less, and that certainly could be a, a valid reason for. Uh, underpaying them based on regular season uh, value. And so it's something that uh, I'm interested to get through all the data and kind of look at and f- figure out if this is a, a market correction that makes sense or if this is an area that teams could exploit. All right. Uh, flawless segue here um, to something, well, I guess slightly related in that it's about baseball. Uh, today on the site we started the power rankings uh, or the positional power rankings, um, which is an attempt, it appears, uh, to look at um, – at each position um, on the baseball diamond and uh, rank uh, the teams uh, 1 through 30 as, as 
to how well they've they've sort of uh, accounted for that position. I'm curious as to um, as to w- why you, as the editor uh, of the site, uh, decided on on this approach. What do you think its its benefits and drawbacks might be? Yeah, so I was actually uh, inspired uh, to do this by uh, MLB Network's top ten show that they do. Uh, they were currently going through the top ten players at each position in the league, as according to. Uh, a player, an analyst, and then their computer simulator that they call the Shredder. And uh, so they were basically discussing, uh, the, like the episode I saw was right fielders, and so they were discussing the relative merits of Mike Stanton and Justin Upton. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Billy Ripken made a case for Ben Zobrist, which I found pretty interesting because the other guys claimed that he was a second baseman and shouldn't have qualified at the position. And, uh, you know, I thought the premise of the show was interesting, but there were questions that were left unanswered in terms of, you know, especially with a guy like Zobrist. So if he's going to split his time between second base and right field, uh, does that make him not one of the ten best second basemen or right fielders because he's, uh, you know, going to play multiple positions and we're only accounting for guys who play full years? And I thought it would be more interesting, instead of just looking at individual players, to look at the total depth chart of what a team has at a spot and kind of, uh, account for all the playing time that's going to go to various players, whether it's defensive replacements, pinch hitters, uh, you know, prospects who might come up mid-season for a team that runs a platoon. Um, you know, how does that weigh out against a, a team that might have a marginal everyday player that they're just going to run out there, whether it's against a lefty or a righty? Uh, you know, you don't see those things debated all that often, or you don't see those things put in context. And I thought it would be fun to uh, kind of take a look at the teams that handle their positions a little bit irregularly and say, you know, how does this set up compare to just having one good everyday player and a standard backup? Right, so you get a sense of of um, not just looking at the players, I guess, but how teams utilize the position as a whole. Yeah, right, and I think, you know, there's some value to positional flexibility, and that's something that maybe isn't always caught when you just look at it and say, okay, Jose Batista is the best right fielder in baseball. That's true, but, you know, if Batista is just going to be the everyday guy, they're going to lose some late-inning defensive value because he's not a great defender. Uh, you know, they're going to – it's not that there's anything wrong with having Jose Batista, but there's some value that other teams might get in mixing and mashing that just isn't accounted for if you just say, Jose Batista is better than Matt Joyce. So it's a true statement, but you don't really get the full value of what Tampa Bay is doing in right field if they're moving a whole bunch of guys around and using defensive subs and uh, playing the platoon matchups. Did I, did I see somewhere um... – uh, an announcement or some statement from from the Reds, perhaps Dusty Baker, that there would be an unusual left field platoon going on in Cincinnati yeah. this year. Well, so it's unusual because they have two right handers, so they're going to platoon. Um, so it's kind of fun to see managers thinking outside the box and not just saying, "Okay, I'm going to platoon based on uh, you know lefty righty matchups and just um, be stri- strictly stuck to handedness." Uh, and actually looking and saying, okay, is there a way to more efficiently platoon beyond that? The problem is that they're platooning Ryan Ludwig and Chris Heisey, essentially because Chris Heisey, in a very small sample of major league plate appearances, has posted a reverse platoon split, and so he hasn't hit left-handers very well at all. Um, but that's certainly, almost certainly not real. It's not something that's an actual talent. And so the Reds are platooning Ludwig and Heisey uh, under a false premise, essentially. And so they're going to not play Heisey against lefties, even though he probably can hit lefties, despite the fact that he hasn't done it very well in the major leagues yet, um, we would expect that he's going to hit lefties fairly well going forward. So they're using two right-handers in the platoon. It's interesting, but it's probably wrong. Right, and uh, of course the bigger problem is that Juan Francisco um, has no starting spot with the Reds. I think we can all well, agree. Well, that is, that, is, 
that's a problem for uh, opposing pitchers who want to pad their strikeout total, certainly. Hmm. Seems like what you're saying is that Juan Francisco has some flaws, and I can't disagree with you there, but I think that his yeah. his strengths, um, not only uh, not only his plus power, uh, but also his ability to bring smiles to the faces of every American, uh, I think those are those are both uh, underrated, Dave Cameron. I'm pretty sure you just made the same argument in favor of Juan Francisco that people have been making in favor of Derek Peter for a very long time. Ignore his performance. He makes me happy. Well, I mean, winning is important. I agree with that. But I think that as a spectator, especially if it's not a team for which you cheer, uh, the team's capacity for winning is, you know, it's diminished. The team's ability to win. And so, yeah, you do it. Now, I don't care. I don't care particularly for Derek Jeter. But I do for Juan Francisco uh, because of his recklessness. Uh, he's uh, he's amusingly reckless, I guess is what I mean to say. Pleasantly reckless. So the, the Reds should give an inferior player playing time in order to make a baseball writer in Madison, Wisconsin happy. Seems reasonable. I mean, that's a good argument to make to Walt Jockety. I'll do it. I'll do it starting uh, when we get off this podcast. Yeah. Good. I don't. Do you think you should record? Well, you think Ryan Ludwig is a, um, a considerable upgrade against right-handed pitchers over Juan Francisco? Uh, I, I, maybe it's not a huge upgrade. I, I'm not a huge Ryan Ludwig fan at this point in his career, but uh, I think Francisco is the kind of guy who probably would be okay as a pinch hitter. Like, I actually like that skill set. Um, for when you're down a run and saying there's two outs and a walk doesn't do you that much good, you just need a guy who can hit the ball over the wall. Uh, you know, I actually am okay with that kind of skill set. So I think there's a role for Juan Francisco. It just shouldn't be regular in my field. Hmm. We'll have to um, settle this with our fists, it sounds like. Uh, oh, I have to do the uh, bullpen piece for Friday, by which time I'll already be in Arizona, of course. Yep. Um, do you want to write that for me, maybe, instead? Uh, sure. I would love to do all of your work and get none of your pay. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, all right. I mean, you... I know you're generous, so this doesn't surprise me that you'd be willing to do that. And what I do, uh, we, we emailed about this briefly, but for the bullpen situation, you, you said I should go four deep? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you look at, like, the leverage numbers for team bullpens, uh, it seems like once you get into the fifth, sixth, seventh relievers, those guys are all throwing, uh, you know, moderate to low leverage innings. They're not getting that many situations in the seventh, eighth, ninth innings of close games. And so even if you have, a you know, a really good fifth best reliever, that guy's probably not going to make a huge impact on your team's wins and losses. For the most part, it's, you know, three or four guys are really going to pitch important situations, and the, the last three guys in your bullpen are just going to kind of be there to soak up innings. All right. Well, that's good, yeah. Well, so I started it at least, um, hopefully to get it done before I get down there so that I can spend, uh, spend all my time in the sun, uh, Dave Cameron. Enjoying Indeed. It. Well, you do have a you have a flight on Thursday that you could you know theoretically do some work on the plane. Although you're flying with Dane Perry, so you probably have quite yeah. a distraction. Yeah, I know. I have to protect myself. Yeah. Yeah, I can't be can't be horsing around. Otherwise, uh, yeah. So I'll do that. But anyway, that sounds that's it's fun. Eric Seidman, um, as we're recording, Eric Seidman's already released his list for catchers. Uh, yeah. Any surprises there for you? I noticed the well, you noted that the uh, the Mariners are 28th overall, which has less to do with Jesus Montero probably and probably more to do with Miguel Olivo. But I'm curious because this is sort of a, you know, this is sort of a project that's been conceived by you, but it's being carried out by people who are not you. So I assume that there will be some instances in which 
know, you have, uh, you know, you yourself would make slight modifications to a list if you were making it, but did that happen with Sidemen at all? Uh, yeah, so actually, uh, at number 30, I was a little surprised with the Dodgers. I don't think that their tandem is all that great. But AJ Ellis gets on base, and, um, you know, Tim Fedorovich is not the worst catching prospect in the world. And, you know, I mean, I think that there's some chance that their group could give him a 330 or 340 on base percentage. Um, which, when you look at, like, the likes of Rod Barajas and Mikhail Levo and some of these other, uh, starters around the league, um, there's, you know, a pretty low bar for catching offense, and so, the, you know, the Dodgers might only get, like, a couple of home runs out of their catching platoon, but if they, you know, get on base at a reasonable clip and, um, they're not terrible defensive catchers, then I, I think I might have ranked the Dodgers, you know, 27th instead of 30th, but overall I think Eric did a really nice job. Yeah. Yeah, that Eric's pretty competent, I will have to say. And uh, he really has a way with uh, puns. I don't know if you've noticed that. He is a big fan of the pun. Yeah, There's he no is. About it. He is. That's actually what we call him Big Pun uh, after the late uh, Puerto Rican rapper. Uh, I was not in on that. Well, I just I just made it up. I just invented uh, it right So now. we don't actually call him Big Pun? Well, the royal we. Okay. Okay. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon, Dave Cameron. Yes. He's very good. He's very good. Uh, yeah. Or I believe uh, maybe yesterday, just Sunday actually, he signed a uh, six-year, $51 million. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it was actually the, uh, very early Monday morning. I was uh, writing an ESPN piece uh, and trying to get it in so I could go to bed, and then all of a sudden news breaks that Andrew McCutcheon signed a contract extension and gave me another article to write before I went to bed. So I really appreciated the Pirates leaking that uh, at an ungodly hour. Yeah, that um, that's too bad for you. Um yeah, when I woke up today, I saw that that uh, article had been written. I think it uh, had been posted maybe at 1:30, about 1:20 a.m. Eastern time. Yeah, yeah, like, just like Walt Jockety should set his lineup based on your personal tastes and interests. Uh, major league teams should really start making transactions in the day to help me perform my job better. Right. Right. Yeah. And of course, uh, it's uh, even maybe more difficult living on the, the East Coast if you had been, you know, if you'd been in uh, your native Seattle. That would probably have been a little, a little more reasonable, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then, uh, so I, I've actually noticed when working on the West Coast, you know, I'm used to being able to wake up, kind of get my uh, bearings in order, set the schedule for the day, kind of go through the Fangraphs queue and see what's on tap and kind of uh, be able to ra- react to news as it breaks around 10 or 11 or so, um, you know, as the news of the day comes out and people go to camp. But when you're on the West Coast, if you don't get up till like, seven or eight o'clock, you know, you've already missed a bunch of stuff and you're behind, and so I actually kind of prefer being on the East Coast uh, and being awake when stuff starts happening rather than waking up, rolling out of bed, and playing three hours of catch-up. Yeah, that's true. That, that certainly does happen. Um, now, again, one of these late-night pieces uh, with which you had to contend was the McCutcheon signing. Um, yeah, I think that this this contract is almost identical to a couple others. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's basically... Uh, and so uh, J- Justin Upton got a six-year, $51 million contract uh, in uh, March of two years ago, 2010. And then uh, Justin, Jay Bruce, nine months ago, nine months later, got six years, $51.25 million. So he uh, upped, up, uh, upped in by 250 grand, but he had to give the Reds a team option for the seventh year. And then McCutcheon uh, beat that by another 250 grand. So he signed for six years, 51 and a half million. So the next young outfielder who signs with two years of service time will apparently have to sign for six fifty-one point seven five because we're going in 250 thousand dollar increments. Right. I mean, essentially, I mean, you obviously are, are kidding a little bit, but do you think that to some degree, you know, the the Pirates sit down with um, 
or you know, I don't know who offers it, but it's something like, well, this is a talented young reliever or a talented young outfielder. You know, here's Justin Upton, here's Jay Bruce, you're Andrew McCutcheon, and this is the contract that you all sign. Yeah, basically. I mean, this is how uh, this is how negotiations work. They find comparables that you know have similar amounts of service time, similar track records at that point. Uh, they look at what you know you could get in arbitration, which is based very heavily on your age, your service time, your playing time, and then your offensive statistics, especially you know home runs and RBIs, um, but especially playing time. And so they, you know, basically look at it and say, okay, you're a 24-year-old outfielder with two plus years of service time, and you have 1,500 plate appearances. Uh, you're going to get something really close to what Justin Upton got, so let's negotiate based on that. And you know, sometimes they'll uh, make arguments, you know, in favor of uh, bigger raises uh, or longer terms. Um, but for the most part, they stay pretty close to the established norms. Uh, in this case, I did think it was interesting. So Carlos Gonzalez is the outlier here. He uh, last year signed a seven-year, $80 million contract with two-plus years of service time. At the same age McCutcheon was when he signed his deal, um, Gonzalez gets significantly more than the other three. He was coming off, you know, a monster offensive season, but he also played in Colorado, and no one's really sure if he's a center fielder or a left fielder or right fielder. Um, and his track record was pretty spotty. He'd already been traded a couple times. His early career wasn't very good. Um, so he basically had one monster year and turned it into a bigger contract than what any of these three guys got, I would say, in retrospect. Uh, Colorado probably overpaid a little bit to get their young outfielder locked up. Right. I, I mean, do you think that there would have been incentive because McCutcheon had, uh, at least by our metrics, had a pretty outstanding 2011. Um, yeah. I mean, he was uh, 5.7 WAR is what he finished with. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know offhand what Gonzalez's uh, Carlos Gonzalez's twenty. 2010 looked like, but I assume it wasn't much better in terms of at least the advanced metrics. Although, as you mentioned, between Colorado um, and you know perhaps a slightly um, more robust uh, offensive game, that he might have uh, outpaced McCutcheon there. But I mean, do you think that do you think that McCutcheon would have had some incentive to to wait another year and maybe put up a, a bigger season or? Um, and before I ask you that, I guess I guess it's, it makes sense to point out that he's had basically identical offensive seasons each of the last three years. Right. I mean, in, the, in Gonzalez's case, I think he only put up a six-war season, so it was barely ahead of him, ahead of the catch in war, but it was much more offense-based. I think he put up a 150 WRC+, plus, which adjusts for Coors Field, and arbitrators aren't even going to do that. They're just going to look at 330 with a bunch of power and a bunch of RBIs. Um, so I think in Gonzalez's case, he had numbers that were – more favorable if he had gone to arbitration, so he probably could have earned more going year to year than a guy like McCutcheon or even an Upton or a Bruce. Um, and I think in McCutcheon's case, he has uh, a skill set that isn't valued all that highly in arbitration, at least relative to other skill sets. So, you know, he can point to a broad base of skills and a nice walk rate and a lot of doubles and the fact that Pittsburgh is a terrible place for right-handed hitters, and the arbitrator is going to yawn and say, well, you know, here's your RBI total, here's your money. And uh, so I think McCutcheon probably was wise to settle for a little bit less than what Gonzalez got, but I, I would have thought that, you know, just based on inflation, he could have gotten something between the Bruce contract and the Gonzalez deal and maybe even closer to the Gonzalez deal. I think it's pretty obvious that McCutcheon's a better player than Jay Bruce by any kind of metric you want to use, uh, even though Bruce has the the power skill set that does well in arbitration. Uh, he's just an inferior player, and it's not that hard to show that. You don't have to go into too many advanced metrics to show that the first three years of McCutcheon's career were significantly better than the first three years of Bruce's career. 
So for him to have to settle for the same exact contract Bruce got 18 months later, which basically ignores inflation and ignores the fact that he's a better player, uh, I think the Pirates have to be really happy with what they were able to do here. Yeah, maybe McCutcheon not quite as much. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's uh, basically set for the next seven years, so he's going to make $65 million, assuming the team option's picked up for his age 31 season. Um, $65 million when you made 450000 each of the past couple years is a nice little amount to be guaranteed. So I don't think McCutcheon did horribly here. I mean, he might have maybe left 10 or $15 million on the table versus if he had really held out the hard line. Um, but, you know, I think overall he got a little bit less than what we would have expected. Um, and, you know, maybe he really loves Pittsburgh. Maybe he wants to be part of what they're doing going forward. I'm not going to fault a guy for, you know, taking $65 million when maybe he could have gotten 75. Uh, but for the Pirates, this is definitely a steal. Yeah, I mean, that's exciting. And I think that... Um Having talked with you, I, I believe that Andrew McCutcheon is the, like the exact sort of player you like. Yeah, this is my favorite kind of player. Is this, uh, you know, does everything well. Maybe not the best player at any particular thing. He's not the world's best defensive center fielder. He's not the world's strongest power hitting, you know, center fielder. Uh, he doesn't lead the league in walks. Uh, he doesn't lead the league in contact rate. Like, there's not one thing in which you say Andrew McCutcheon is the best at this. But he's really good at everything. So this is kind of the Grady Sizemore, Kenny Lofton uh, skill set, and, and I'm a big fan of these type of players. I think that they're generally underrated. I think that we focus too much on guys who are league leaders at some special category or have one obvious plus tool that is, you know, the best in the game or something close to it um, in one area, and then they're deficient in other areas. McCutcheon's the kind of guy who his overall game adds up to you know, making him as good as a lot of those specialists. So, you know, I mean, maybe he's not quite as fast or as strong as Matt Kemp, uh, but his plate discipline more than makes up for it. Um, he's probably a better defensive outfielder. UVR doesn't love either of them, but I think I, I'd rather have McCutcheon in center than Matt Kemp, and, uh, and he's younger. So, you know, going forward, I don't know if there's another center fielder in baseball I'd take before I take Andrew McCutcheon. Well, no, a curious thing is uh, recently in the podcast we had uh, Charlie Wilmoth from Bucks Dugout, the SB Nation blog for the Pirates, and... Um, we were talking about, you know, not just McCutcheon and uh, Jose Tabata, um, but another outfielder. Or, I mean, they actually have more than one, but another outfielder they have coming up in Starling Marte, uh, who is supposed to be, I think, uh, actually a, a better defender um, than than McCutcheon. My guess is that um, you'd agree with Charlie and that you don't see Marte pushing McCutcheon off center field anytime soon. Um, but I'm curious as to um, to what your take is on on that sort of the sort of um, near future of the Padres outfield after McCutcheon and Tabata. They have Presley there now, uh, but they also have uh, Marte and then um, another playing uh, another player in Robbie Grossman, um, who really uh, hit very well in the Arizona Fall League this year. Yeah, uh, for me, I actually I like Presley quite a bit. I think if you uh if you look at the combination of power and contact rate, I mean, he's not like a slugger, but he's got extra base hit power. He drives the ball into the gaps. And he made contact 85% of the time he swung last year. And so that combination of putting the bat on the ball while also hitting the ball hard generally plays out pretty well. I don't think he's going to be any kind of star, but I actually kind of like Alex Presley. I think he could hold down the job this year. Uh, to me, Tobit is a guy who's maybe not a long-term solution, and he's the guy I would expect uh, either Marte or Grossman or someone else to push out of the way in the next couple of years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think McCutcheon's basically locked in at center field. Even if he's not as good defensively as Marte and Marte gets to the major leagues, 
you're okay with maybe a slightly suboptimal defensive alignment uh, in order to keep your best players in a position they're comfortable with. And, you know, by and large, we've seen that teams that run out two center fielders side by side don't really lose that much from having the uh, better defender in a corner than they do in center field anyway. The Yankees are doing this with Granderson and Brett Gardner, and Gardner is probably a better defender right now than Granderson is, but they're still getting a ton of defensive value from having Brett Gardner in left field. So maybe they could switch them and gain an extra run or two or something, but it's a pretty small difference. Uh, you know, the ball still hit to left field a lot. The ball hits right field a lot. You can use good defense in any spot in the outfield. Right. So, and, you, and so you don't, you're not necessarily uh, particularly optimistic about um, Tabata's future, and even though I think that he signed a, a decently sized contract last year, right? Well, I think he signed a deal that basically bought out all his arbiters, but they didn't commit to a ton of money to him, and I think he was the kind of guy who... Um, probably profiles more as like a fourth outfielder on a good team. And so if the Pirates are going to want to make the jump from, you know, kind of also ran to actual contender, he's, he's holding a spot that they might want to upgrade. All right. Uh, well, that's excellent stuff, uh, Dave Cameron. Um, you know, I, th- I think we're, we're approaching the end of, of our time here. Um, but, of course, we're going to see each other in Arizona, too. I mean, I mean did you have anything that uh, you wanted to add, either um, to make this podcast complete or – or also uh, maybe just any notes you wanted to make about Arizona? Well, I'm definitely excited about the Arizona trip, uh, but, you know, I, I feel like we really didn't talk about your haircut enough. That should have been the star of this whole discussion. Oh, yeah. Well, I do, like, um, I, I don't know if I mentioned, I, I do look pretty handsome with it. Um, I'm uh, actually entertaining now the possibility of, um, uh, uh, over Christmas, uh, I had a mustache, and I had it for about a month and a half, and I looked pretty handsome with the mustache. Um, and uh, while I was trying to prune it, actually, uh, actually I uh, ruined it, um, so I had to shave it off. Um, but now I've grown out my entire beard, um, and I think that I will be uh, giving um, uh, giving myself a mustache uh, once again before I get down there, so you have that to look forward to as well. So wait, you're going to shave off the beard before I see you on Thursday? I will shave off the beard, but I will leave the mustache, is what I'm saying, Dave Cameron. Why are you getting rid of the beard? Oh, I don't know. Um, why, do you want to see a beard? Well, I mean, I think that any necessary preparation for a t- trip to the desert should involve as much facial hair as possible. Yeah, that's true. That's that's what people always say. And um, slacks and a, and, a, and a nice winter coat as well. A nice yeah, right. Down. You, you should bu- bu- bundle up and uh, try and insulate yourself as much as possible because you don't want to be cold in Phoenix. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I am. I do admit. Um, I don't know if I'm. Um, I know that you, you choose who's staying with who, and um, I was assuming, although maybe it, uh, incorrectly, that, that you placed uh, Dane and I in the same room. That is correct. Yeah. I, I figure that I would not want to inflict Dane upon anyone else. No, I know, and I'm quite worried about it myself. Uh, yes, for the right. You might want to bring like a hunting knife or some other kind of object that you can get it through security. Right. Yeah. Maybe just kind of like keep it under my pillow, just in case. Right. Uh, definitely a good idea to discuss bringing weapons aboard a plane on a podcast. I really yeah. hope no one with the TSA is listening to this. Well, no, but I, I will say that uh, I bet you would have no problem whatsoever acquiring a weapon on short notice in Phoenix. That's probably very true. Yeah. I, I would imagine it's the kind of place where you can buy almost anything you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I, you'd have a problem getting your hands on a Bowie knife, for example. That would, that would be <laughs> easy enough. But I will say... Um, one of the funniest and also most disgusting things that anyone has ever said to me was uh, I had a roommate um, during grad school, and uh, he had run with some uh, s- some 
crust punk sorts. You've probably seen them out in Seattle. Uh, he was from Port Townsend, so um, they were from there. And uh, this guy, uh, again, disgusting but hilarious. Uh, when I, I woke up one morning and he had been sleeping on the couch, um, I came out into the living room. And just the only thing he said to me, and we had known each other for like a grand total of 10 minutes, he just said it in a very serious voice looking at me. He said, Carson, you will sleep through anything. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But I think that uh, Dane is probably of, I can imagine him doing something along those lines. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad I'm not sleeping with him because I actually can sleep through anything. The last time I went to Florida for spring training, we stayed with a friend of mine who was near the Kennedy Space Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I woke up in the morning, they were like, man, look at all these broken dishes. Did you hear that big rocket last night? And I had no idea what they were talking about. But apparently they launched a space shuttle or a rocket or something at like 3 in the morning and like damaged everyone's house in the nearby vicinity. And I slept through it. So if I can sleep through a rocket launch, I am afraid that Dane would be able to like cut my arms off in the middle of the night and I wouldn't feel it. Yeah, right. And I will say I have slept in the same room as you and um, it is a formidable experience. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, snoring is not something that I have figured out how to beat yet. Yeah. Well, uh, Although Amy actually does inform me that uh, it's gotten better since chemotherapy. So uh, there's, like, this interesting list of, like, uh, since I had chemo last year, like, my snoring has apparently improved. I don't think it's completely gone, but it's apparently it's better. Uh, I'm getting many fewer migraine headaches than I used to. Oh, God, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like maybe if people are having issues with snoring or headaches, they should undergo chemotherapy. I guess that's my advice. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a proper treatment. But I guess there is some argument because it essentially kills every cell in your body, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Essentially, I had so many antibiotics last year that if there was anything going wrong, they got nuked pretty good. (laughs) That is both uh, uh, funny and harrowing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Anyways, Dave, uh, um, thank you, of course, for participating. Uh, in this episode of Fangraphs Audio, and I look forward to seeing you in Arizona. Yeah, me too. Hopefully uh, we can avoid, uh, you know, too many fisticuffs. All right. Uh, and I will also add that uh, for this edition of the podcast, when I say goodbye, I will be, I will be hitting stop on, on re- the record area here. You are not going to reveal more company trade secrets? No, I won't be doing that. Anyway, thank okay. you for joining us, Dave Cameron. That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. Stop. Thank you.